Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. In episode 17, we'll look at what occurred following the Glenrowan siege and the capture of Ned Kelly. Joe, Steve and Dan died at what was later referred to as Kelly's last stand at Glenrowan. Despite his protective armour, Ned was finally disabled by the police and arrested there too. With large numbers of Kelly supporters gathering to claim the bodies of Dan Kelly and Steve Hart, the mood was becoming potentially confrontational again, and the senior police loaded up the injured Ned Kelly and the body of Joe Byrne onto a train at Glenrowan and made for the police barracks at Benella. So we'll take up the story at that point today. I'll just remind any new listeners that this saga is drawing to its close now. And if you do have an interest in the Kelly story, you might like to listen to the earlier episodes, starting at episode 2 or 3, to get an understanding of what led to the Glenrowan siege and to Ned's trial that we'll be talking about today. As always, there's a reference list and other supporting materials and images at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and my contact details can be found there too. Along with the usual suspects, I'll be drawing heavily from Castle and Castle's book, Ned Kelly's Last Days. Alex Castle's taught law for more than 30 years, and he brings this expertise to a very thorough review of the evidence, witnesses, processes and general legal principles that form a large part of this end of the Kelly saga. Publication details are on the reference list, of course, on the website. So let's get on with today's penultimate Kelly episode. If you recall from the last episode, Joe Byrne had been hit while inside the Glenrowan Inn, standing at the bar, by an unlucky bullet making its way between the sections of his armour. It hit him in the groin, and it must have severed the main artery there, as witnesses described him dropping to the ground and hearing him bleed out, dying very soon afterwards right there where he fell. Ned was out of the building at this time, and Dan Kelly and Steve Hart, then being left alone, seemed to have retreated into the small room the Kellys had been using. Removing their armour and making themselves comfortable on the floor, they appear to have taken their own lives in there, once they saw that Ned had been captured outside and all chance of escape or victory clearly gone. Their suicide is conjecture, of course, as no one witnessed it directly, but based on other evidence we can make some pretty good assumptions. Joe, at least, was reportedly carrying poison and Father Gibney saw their bodies when he entered the building before the fire took hold, describing their position on the floor as laying together with their heads on a rolled canvas pillow, and that they seemed then to already be long dead. Ending their own lives there seems to be a very likely probability. Indeed, Kelly, while under guard at Glenrowan, did state that the gang had agreed to shoot each other rather than be captured by police, so the idea of taking their own lives was already in their minds. We just cannot know for sure with all the evidence destroyed in the subsequent inferno, but the positions of their bodies indicate they were not caught in the attempt to escape the burning building. Either they were already dead or unconscious to have remained laying as they were in the room as the fire took hold, 
There were many witnesses to see them in place as the walls and the roof collapsed, allowing the onlookers a gruesome view of the poor boys burning. Some of the police would not like to have the suggestion of suicide recorded, though. Suicide would preclude them from collecting the reward for capturing or killing Dan, Steve and Joe. Ned was said to have been the first to fire a shot at the siege, aiming for Superintendent Hare, but only injuring him in the wrist. Jones records a nearby trooper hearing Hare say, Good gracious, I'm hit the very first shot. Ned was himself then hit in return by the first volley from the police. While his armour had served well to protect him from any fatal shots to his head or body, he sustained a few very serious bullet wounds which impeded his activities and restricted his abilities for the rest of the siege and surely contributed to his defeat. The first bullet hit his left arm while it was bent together at the elbow, causing debilitating injuries both above and below his elbow, penetrating through both sections. The other incapacitating shot received at that time entered his foot at the toe and exited through his heel, pretty much destroying his right foot. Dr Nicholson reported that Ned, after his capture at Glenrowan, was ghostly white and shivering with cold. He had bruising all over, probably as the result of many bullet percussions through the steel armour, with swollen and bruised eyes and nose and cheek injuries from the iron helmet. Ned had more than 28 separate wounds in the exposed parts of his body, including a bullet later removed from the sole of his left foot and one which remained in his left leg along with the shot pellets in his right knee. That first injury to his left arm completely shattered the bones within and it made his arm pretty useless. And a later injury to his right hand meant he could no longer manipulate the fingers there either, including no longer being able to write. So while he remained standing until his final collapse and capture, he was clearly riddled with shot and bullet wounds at the end, and his survival at all in a time of no blood transfusions, I think serves once again to build on his myth of invincibility. If nothing else, his physical constitution was amazing. Dr Charles Ryan also came to Glenrowan on the train that brought Standish from Melbourne, and by the evening he readied the injured Ned for a train ride to Benalla. While Ned had many wounds, Dr Ryan was pretty sure he would not die of any, so on arrival, rather than take him to the hospital at Benalla, they simply locked him up in one of the jail cells, placing Joe's body in the cell next door. Senior Constable John Kelly, no relation, got him settled in there, and before leaving him to rest after that marathon day, he asked Ned the inevitable question. Why? Wearily, Ned once again defended all his actions as a response to persistent police provocation, and in particular the corrupt Fitzpatrick incident and the jailing of Alan Kelly. The next few days and weeks would provide many insights from Ned's discussions with witnesses, and some were used as evidence against him, though not recorded within a legal framework. One of the more interesting visitors that Ned received on Tuesday at Benella was Constable McIntyre, the only survivor of the Mansfield party at Stringybark Creek. Castles records that McIntyre, quote, acted courageously and showed great physical and mental endurance throughout his gruelling ordeal, and yet public perception of him remained decidedly negative, 
unquote. Indeed, he endured unpleasant public scrutiny for the remainder of his life, particularly in relation to his character. Insinuations of cowardice dogged him after the public learned of him hiding in a wombat hole. Despite this being a very wise response, actually, and this slur on his character greatly disturbed him, as I noted in an earlier episode. Trying to redeem his reputation and clearly state his actions and reasons provided part of the motivation for later writing his memoir. Poor bloke, there's just so many ways that Kelly's behaviour impacted negatively on so many people. McIntyre felt a desperate need to speak with Ned, hoping a talk with him might clarify his own responses and thus satisfy his personal honour. But when the opportunity arose at Benella, even after Ned had asked to see him, McIntyre made excuses to avoid seeing him face to face. I think, as a victim of a violent crime, it's not surprising that one might have mixed feelings and exhibit anxiety at the prospect of seeing one's assailant again. Fortunately, we've at least come some way to understanding the psychological impact of these traumas, even if we still have a way to go. Finally, though, as dawn approached, McIntyre did find the strength, and it was a positive experience for him in the end. They met for about 15 minutes, mainly discussing Stringybark Creek. McIntyre had earlier recorded, quote, I do not believe that the murderers went to the camp with the intention of taking life, unquote, and he hoped to find out from Ned himself what their intention really was. Apparently, as often happens when two people experience the same thing, they agreed on recollections of some elements, but not of others. Castles, in his book, quotes the following exchange, quote, why did you come near us at all? he asked Ned. You could have kept out of our way when you knew we were there. Ned replied, You would soon have found us out. If we did not shoot you, you would have shot us. McIntyre then felt the murders probably were premeditated, but he needed one last question answered. Did I show any cowardice when bailed up? And Ned replied without any hesitation, No! It seemed that Ned held no ill will at all towards McIntyre, despite him holding all the evidence that would likely be used to hang Kelly in the future. And McIntyre did go on to give that evidence as the main witness for the prosecution. Indeed, even a more harshly edited version of his evidence than he recorded in his initial reports. No doubt he was under tremendous pressure from his superiors and colleagues to ensure Kelly would be convicted, this element aside, McIntyre was very fair in his testimony, all things considered. With his exemplary record in the force, McIntyre was one of the competent and reliable officers, working in a rather poor quality outfit, and he also gave evidence later at the Royal Commission into the Kelly outbreak. While he continued to do his best in the force, he really was disturbed by how the Kelly outbreak had affected his life, and he left the police force late in 1881 when he returned to Ballarat to live on the police pension and to write poetry. Surprisingly, he was never granted any portion of the reward for the capture of the Kellys, when so many other minor players were. He died in 1918, aged 72, and is buried at Ballarat. His grave now has a tombstone erected by his grandchildren in 1988. Tuesday at Benalla, the officers undertook their official activities, including the 11am parade, where Standish was to address them all, though not before having the Queensland Native Police removed before he would go ahead. 
even though they had all been present and active right throughout the siege at Glenrowan. The gaggle of journalists and photographers had convinced the police on duty to bring Joe's body out and to string it up to a door so they could photograph and sketch his likeness in, quote, as natural a pose as possible, unquote, after washing his face and combing his hair. And I spoke natural there with air quotes, of course. The resulting grotesque photographs were published in the papers soon afterwards, and these images are likely to be familiar to fans of the Kelly story. I'll post one on the website if you're interested. This may have been done without official approval, but it does seem an appalling breach of professionalism, and more to our sensibility today. The picture shows Joe still wearing the rings he stole from Scanlon, and an unknown person, but by his burial later that night, they had disappeared, with no documentation as to where they ended up. Afterwards, his body was taken down, as the police prepared for a speedy inquest at the Manella local court. The need for haste is unusual, and not really well explained, but it may have been encouraged for similar reasons that allowed for the removal of Dan and Steve's remains. That is, to reduce the risk, and an ongoing reason, for Kelly sympathisers to launch an assault, to try and liberate Joe's body or free Ned. They might still be a potentially formidable armed force en masse. So, to again aid in expediency, the inquests were undertaken by the local justice of the peace, Robert McBean, rather than a coroner. You may recall Robert McBean, who lived in the northeast with land adjoining the Kellys, and for being a good friend of Chief Commissioner of Police Standish. He certainly had a personal history with the Kellys, and indeed he was once held up by Harry Power all those years ago when Ned was working with him. It was the reward for his stolen pocket watch that brought Power undone in the end. So McBean was hardly an impartial judge. Though, after the long Kelly outbreak, it may have been hard to find anyone still impartial. <laughs> so, McBean, working with Standish as the Crown Law representative, began the rather hurried and truncated inquests on Tuesday at Benella. The first was that of poor Martin Cherry, who had died from gunshot wounds just moments after being pulled from the burning building at Glenrowan on Monday afternoon. Constable Bracken gave evidence that Cherry was in the hotel and unhurt at the time he made his escape from the hotel. Cherry was found to have died from a single bullet wound to his lower abdomen, fired by the police in their lawful execution of their duties. The family were then able to take the body for burial at the Benalla Cemetery, where his grave remained unmarked until a memorial was added in the 1990s. I think I've mentioned earlier also that on the day the siege took place in Glenrowan, the local magistrate at Beechworth, William Foster, was also acting as coroner, making his investigation into Aaron Sherrod's death the Saturday night previous. His investigation was a bit more thorough than the Benalla inquests, though. He impanelled a jury, had an autopsy carried out on Aaron's body, and he visited the site of the shooting. Many witnesses were called to give evidence, though one juror apparently suggested evidence would not be complete without Ned being called. But then Ned was rather busy in Glenrowan, so that was clearly out of the question. Ned aside, it was a pretty standard inquest. The doctor reported that Aaron had died from two bullet wounds, one bullet still present in his body, and the inquest heard how the police on site had provided neither assistance nor showed valour in carrying out their expected duties. Foster found that Sherrod was murdered by Joe Byrne and abetted by Dan Kelly. 
Aaron's family could now make arrangements for his burial. He was interred at Beechworth Cemetery, also in an unmarked plot, this time at the request of the relatives. Though his father was later buried there next to him, I do not know if that was marked. After the cherry inquest was concluded at Benalla, Joe's inquest began, and his body was formally identified by a police constable, Canny, who had known Joe for the previous eight years. Thomas McIntyre, who had first come face-to-face with Joe at Stringybark Creek, also gave evidence about that encounter and the subsequent outlawing of the gang members that followed. And then one of the witnesses from inside the Glenrowan Hotel, uh, Louis Piazzi, reported on Joe's death at the hotel bar. Though no autopsy was undertaken, this evidence was enough for McBean and Standish to rule a justifiable homicide finding formally stating that, quote, the outlaw Joseph Byrne, whose body was before the court and in the possession of the police, was shot by them in the execution of their duty, unquote. No mention was made of the potential for suicide. The newspaper men in attendance when Joe was searched noted the small packet of poison, though did not comment on whether it may have been opened. But this item was not recorded in the police documentation or mentioned at the inquest. Piazzi's evidence does seem convincing, and it's likely that the shot actually did kill Joe quickly. There was no family in attendance to collect Joe's body, so the court arranged for disposal. He was placed in a canvas shroud, in a plain wooden coffin, transported to Benalla Cemetery, and buried quietly there that evening in a pauper's grave. There was another inquest held on Wednesday the 30th at Wangaratta, by Justice of the Peace Alex Tobin. The Jones family had left Glenrowan as soon as they could on the Monday of the siege and they made for the hospital with young John Jones but the doctors there were unable to save him and he died the following day. At the inquest Anne and Jane both described the horror of the police fire coming into the building and recalled the numerous times they called for the barrage to stop so that the hostages could come out safely and told of Hare and the others ignoring such calls. Tobin pointedly refused to record that the police actions had been justified. So we can see already there's some division and concern amongst those not in need of saving their own necks. John Jones was then buried at the Wangaratta Cemetery. Meanwhile, later on the Tuesday, Ned was being quietly transported back to the Benalla Railway Station. Well, as quietly as you can be when you're surrounded by heavily armed police. And he was loaded onto the train bound for Melbourne. Dr. Ryan accompanied him, and the wounded hare was also travelling on board. Ned spent the trip chatting with various persons, answering questions and giving explanations. One of the interesting things was his comment once again that the Queensland police were his greatest fear, and that disposing of them was high on his list of achievements for Glenrowan. And yet we know that the Victorian police failed to recognise their value to the search, and that they had already dismissed them prior to the siege. Only the close timing, and good or bad luck, depending on how you might look at this, ensured that they were on board the train that night at all. Ned is also supposed to have commented that he doubted that Dan and Steve would have had the nerve to shoot themselves, though he did describe Joe as plucky. (laughs) Word must have got out about Ned's trip south, as crowds were gathered at each station stop, hoping to get a glimpse of the notorious Kelly. The massive crowd at Spencer Street Station in Melbourne, though now remodelled and called Southern Cross Station, would have been disappointed. Hare had arranged for the unscheduled stop one station prior at North Melbourne 
and the police cart waiting there drove Ned straight to the Melbourne jail at Russell Street. While there was also a good crowd waiting in attendance there, cheering and jeering, the cart was able to drive straight through the prison gates and Ned was taken to the jail hospital and placed under the care of the prison doctor Shields. By now he was exhibiting signs of early fever, no doubt from infection setting in at the many wound sites. His survival was still not a sure thing. Hare continued on board the train though and disembarked at Spencer Street himself. Although the crowd would have been disappointed to miss a chance to glimpse Kelly being unloaded, Hare at least got to hear their resounding cheers and applause for the capture. But cheers and applause would not be forthcoming from all Victorians. Many were deeply disturbed and unhappy about the police conduct at Glen Rowan, and indeed throughout the Kelly outbreak. Within hours of the siege, the people of Benalla in particular were complaining of the unnecessary risks imposed on the Kelly hostages which we know resulted in several deaths and injuries, not to mention the substantial trauma involved. Many believed the police showed cowardice in setting fire to the inn instead of charging it much earlier, especially as firing from the hotel had long since ceased. Only the Catholic priest was brave enough to do the right thing, the police following him in only at the last minute. Maloney describes the mood descending into a, quote, welter of recrimination, denunciation, resignation and continued futility, unquote. There would be major soul-searching and changes in the police force in the coming months. Standish, reading the signs after 22 years in the job, resigned in September 1880 to devote himself to pursuits of the turf on his police pension. Sadlier, who I personally think did not have a leg to stand on either after his lack of compassion at Glenrowan, had the following harsh words to sum up his boss in his memoirs. Slightly abridged here from Caulfield's book, he wrote, quote, He belonged to the high-class English country family, had received a liberal education, and possessed many natural gifts. I doubt, however, whether he possessed a higher sense of duty. He was too much a man of pleasure to devote himself seriously to the work of his office, and this led him to form intimacies with some officers of like mind and I'm guessing here he's referring to Hare, perhaps, and to think less of others who were much more worthy of regard. This mistake led to trouble and lowered the tone and character of the service, unquote. Well, we can't really argue with that analysis, I think. Time and again, it seemed poor leadership from above resulted in the frontline forces being poorly selected, poorly billeted, trained, resourced, and then blamed when their service failed. The good men in the force, like Kennedy and McIntyre, must have just despaired. Newspapers reported that Steve's brother, Dick Hart, had sworn to head up another and stronger gang to lead on from the Kellys, that another outbreak was threatened. Such reports were hosed down by some authorities, not wanting to give oxygen to the fury in the northeast, but others were happy to have such a threat widely known, as it helped them justify any overzealous behaviour they were now being accused of. But the press response was already turning from pleasure at the destruction of the gang to critically reviewing the cost and questioning the tactics of the Kelly Hunt and their capture, including that appalling disregard for safety of the civilians at Glen Rowan. Soon there were calls for an inquiry into the siege and into the causes of the Kelly outbreak and the police responses in general, suggesting that the police force needed a strong review and reorganisation. Of Glen Rowan, one journalist wrote, Quote, the want of judgment displayed by them was criminal. The indiscriminate firing into a house filled with women and children was a most disgraceful act. Unquote. 
Sadly, I even tried to claim Martin Cherry was not killed by the police, but was deliberately shot by Kelly. He even rounded up a couple of witnesses to support his story. But it was all very dodgy, and the claim was very soon discredited, so many other witnesses having seen the actual incident. It came out that some of Sadlier's witnesses were being threatened by the police into supporting their story. So Sadlier, knowing he had managed the siege badly, now compounded his crimes with forced manipulation of evidence, and he lost any credibility or respect he may have earned in the early days of the outbreak. When the blowback seemed inevitable, Standish began to support the idea of an inquiry, suggesting that it be full and impartial, but then proposing the press should be excluded. So not that full and impartial then, certainly not transparent enough to withstand any public gaze, it seems. A friend sent me a very recent newspaper article, an excerpt from a book by O'Reilly. The article was all about Standish. I haven't read the book itself, only the excerpt in the newspaper, but I'll include the details in the reference list. Now, this series is all about the Kellys, so I've not gone into too much detail about many others whose lives intersect, but there were some interesting things in the article I thought might be worth including here. It certainly gives you a flavour of the man, if you haven't already picked it up to date, the type of person defining the character of the Victorian police force at this time. Standish did indeed come from a landed family in England, but early on he'd done what a great many of Australia's transplanted aristocrats had done before him. That is, he'd run up debts, in his case gambling and horse racing debts in particular, to such an extent that he had to leave his nine-year commission in the Royal Artillery, cash out his father's estate and lands, and, still being dangerously in debt, he had to flee England under a false name, so that he wouldn't be discovered boarding the ship. What a fine specimen of a man Standish was, eh? Honestly, never mind the sons of convicts, this country was chock-full of the black sheep of snooty British families escaping dubious situations at home, to become large and often highly dodgy frogs in this very small Australian pond. Arriving here, he headed to the goldfields, which is pretty much a gamble in itself, though one does have to work hard and get one's hands dirty to have any chance at all, and that kind of thing does not come naturally to the gentry. So he set himself up to sell sly grog to survive instead. Now is that ringing any bells, Ellen Kelly? Melbourne, post-gold rush, was booming, but Standish's old habits were too great for his meagre income. Luckily for him, he bumped into an influential friend from his Royal Artillery days, who was now here as some kind of bigwig with influence, and that friend was able to arrange for Standish a lucrative job as Assistant Commissioner of Police on the Bendigo Goldfields. So now a man with no policing experience and an unreliable background was head of a group tasked with policing the sly grog sellers and gold diggers in Bendigo. So it's not what you know, is it? Though, ironically, he would know quite a lot about how sly grog sellers operated. But it's who you know, of course. Using his posh social skills, he was now in the dress circle for a stellar future. He was a fun chap, being a drinker, a card player, a gambler and a brothel frequenter. And as long as he had an income, he could keep up with the lads at the Melbourne Club. O'Reilly has him moving to Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police within six years and he joined all the influential and powerful groups in Melbourne, one of which was the Melbourne Turf Club, moving up the ranks there until he was in a management position, 
and by 1861 he had instigated and massively promoted the first Melbourne Cup, a two-mile horse race. This annual race has become an institution in Melbourne and indeed across Australia and the international racing circuit. We can now see why newspapers during the Kelly outbreak were always deriding the police management for being at social functions. The many race carnivals or hobnobbing at the Melbourne Club or other diverting social venues. Standish himself always seemed hard to find when some crisis arose. Anyway, his retirement in September would allow the Royal Commission to review the whole service and install hopefully better calibre of senior staff to lead the force in the future. So let's get back to the main narrative then, and we'll return to Ned in Melbourne. Ned was now recovering at the Melbourne jail. Because of the Outlawry Act, some believed that he would just be executed without the usual criminal trial. But even if this were a legal avenue, the Act had expired by the time he was captured. So there would be a trial, and many looked forward to Ned being punished under the law for his crimes. Castles records that in 1880, Victoria's literacy rate was one of the highest in the world, and per capita sales of newspapers were possibly the greatest ratio in the world. Melbourne had several regular or daily papers, including the rather liberal and left-leaning Age, considered the working man's paper, and its similarly liberal Herald, which tended to focus more on sport and was considered a friend to the Catholic views, the Daily Telegraph apparently took a more Protestant view of the world, and the Argus, at three times the price of the age, was described as a deeply conservative and reflecting the issues of interest to the elites. Castle suggests that, while you might expect a spread of opinion on most subjects across these kind of publications, for most of the Kelly outbreak, despite their differing styles in reporting, they had generally all been clear in their condemnation of the gang and the troublemakers in the northeast. And after Ned was captured, this view remained, with the reports describing the gang members with words like demons and miscreants, bloodthirsty wretches and blood-stained villains. While there were stories throughout the period questioning the reasons for the outbreak and pointing to the problems of authority, management and public expenditure, and noting the suggestions about why so many in the northeast were willing to support the Kellys against the authorities, their deeds were always abhorred. There was little sympathy expressed for the deaths of Joe, Dan and Steve, and while there was a great interest in Ned's every utterance, his boldness, armour and fearlessness, all the papers, in the early days at least, reported nothing but the desire to see him expire his crime on the gallows. The reports and the sketches portrayed were an interesting mix of demonic and animalistic aggressive poses, with virtually no resemblance to Ned at all, rather like caricatures of evil. Though later, more heroic and handsome drawings did get published, and we see the beginning of the hero worship, which later found its place amongst some in the community. During the outbreak, many stories were published that were complete fabrications, including drawings and reports of violent and debauched goings-on, such as the wake for Steve and Dan at Greta. Though, of course, no outsiders were there, and no one could have witnessed any such thing. Fake news is not such a new phenomenon after all. Interestingly though, while the general public mood outside the Northeast condemned the Kellys, there was always a minority who expressed sympathy for his plight. Over the weeks, these sentiments became more visible. The Kellys were well known to the Governor of Melbourne Jail. 
John Castillo had been governor at Beechworth in the early years, and he had hosted many of the extended Kelly, Quinn and Lloyd families there, as they came and went for various sentences. He was moved to govern Pentridge Prison near Melbourne in 1869, and so he was there when Ned served his sentence between Pentridge and the prison Hulk Sacramento, 1871-74. to He was said to have been a fair and compassionate man, considering his line of work in those days. Ned had been escorted to the Melbourne jail by three officers. Steele, who had been credited with taking him down and nearly executing him on the spot at Glenrowan. Bracken, who'd been held by the gang and then escaped at Glenrowan. And McIntyre. McIntyre was very unhappy at being charged with escorting Ned. He felt it imprudent, given he would likely be the main witness against Ned in the coming court case. But his superiors had insisted perhaps another indicator of their less-than-professional attitudes. When Ned first arrived, he was housed in the prison hospital, and the doctors had been somewhat concerned by his mental state, saying, he gave me the idea he wished to die. Indeed, Ned had previously mentioned that at Glenrowan he'd, quote, had half a mind to shoot myself, but of course he did not have the dexterity because of his wounds. The authorities were determined that he should be nursed back to health and meet his end as punishment meted out by the system not by his own hand, and though he seemed perfectly resigned to his fate, they took good care to help him recover. The first few weeks he remained weak and pale, and they made sure his diet was healthy and nourishing. Castillo even allowed a small fire into his cell, as the cold seemed to affect him very badly now, despite the fact that for many years he could sleep rough out in the bush. At first, though, he was to have no visits from friends and family, and communications he made were often not delivered. This isolation was not Castillo's choice, but orders from above. The prison chaplain was able to regularly visit, though, and he took news to and from his mother. Castle suggests that while religion played very little part in Ned's personal life in the past, he did seem to respond well to these ministrations, and that his religious reawakening seemed to help him reflect on his mortal sins. Castillo himself was a regular visitor, and they spent hours chatting, Though sadly, contents of those conversations didn't make it into Castillo's diaries. As the weeks progressed, the governor felt Ned's spirits were lifting, and fears of an attempt at suicide faded. Ned began looking towards making a show of his trial, at least. The old Kelly confidence was returning. After Ned was imprisoned at Melbourne Jail, Mrs Kennedy, the widow of the police sergeant shot at Stringybark Creek, asked for permission to visit with Ned. She desperately wanted to ask him about her husband's last moments. There were some frightful things published about Kennedy's death, including horrific speculation on the treatment of his body afterwards. Words from Ned's mouth, though shocking, might at least clarify for her the unknown. In the hold-ups at Euroa and Gerildery, Ned had always been kind to the women, and she would have hoped he would show her some compassion and answer her questions. But Castillo, believing he knew the type of man Kelly was, encouraged Standish to refuse the request, explaining that Ned would, quote, merely behave in a manner to which he was born, as one by nature given to foul, abusive and low conduct, to which no respectable female ought to expose herself. And so poor Mrs Kennedy's devout wish was denied. Given Ned's record with the women, particularly those he could relate to his mother, My feeling is he probably would have behaved kindly and honestly towards Mrs Kennedy. 
but I think never knowing was a devastating loss for her, and for him also, probably, in striving for any crumb of redemption. I'm so annoyed at them for making those decisions for her, when she was willing to take the risk herself. Poor thing. Originally, Ned was to be taken to the city court in Melbourne for his preliminary hearing, but a date was frequently delayed by the authorities, using Ned's recovering health as grounds for the delay. More likely, though, there was some debate about the legality of bringing him south to Melbourne in the first place, and that technically he should really have been remanded in Beechworth. Finally, the committal hearing was set for August 2nd at the city police court, and in the week before he was able to speak to Mr Zink, the Kelly's Beechworth solicitor. But just as the date approached, an unusual decision was made. A sort of semi-formal hearing was set up in the prison itself on Saturday, July 31st. Magistrate Frederick Call oversaw the gathering, and though Zink was made aware of the hasty arrangements, he did not make himself available to ensure that nothing was said or done that might prejudice his client. Ned was left unrepresented. When he asked if this was to be his trial, he was told, no, this was just a gathering to authorise to move the committal proceedings from Melbourne to Beechworth. I guess the authorities thought if they got that legal train back on the correct track, there would be one less potential opportunity for appeals. For the record, McIntyre identified Ned as the assailant to be charged, and so Call then ruled that Ned be transferred to Beechworth to answer charges of murder of Lonigan and Scanlon there on August 6th. The authorities then set about making arrangements for a special train to move Ned North immediately on the Sunday morning. When Maggie and Tom found out about Zink's absence, they were rightly annoyed at his lack of care and professionalism in not being present, and further, they were angry that he completely failed to advise them about the hearing, although they were in Melbourne at the time. So Maggie spoke to David Gaunson, a young Melbourne lawyer who was happy to take on the high-profile case at short notice. Either Zink then quit in disgust at Maggie talking to Gaunson, or Maggie let him go after the debacle at the jail. But either way, Zink failed to share any of his knowledge about Ned and the case with Gaunson, who then had to prepare to take up Ned's defence in just a few days in Beechworth. So on the 6th, Ned was to appear at Beechworth Court with a solicitor who knew none of his background and who had arrived in town only late the evening before, allowing only one hour for them to meet and talk. They decided to request a further remand first thing, to allow more time to prepare their defence. But right up front, Ned let Gaunson know he did not care which way the case went, only that he should have a fair trial and an opportunity to have his side heard in public. With the strong media interest, the trial would be the only time large numbers of the public would get to see and hear Ned. He did, however, complain that Maggie had been stopped from seeing him, and she was to deliver new clothes for him to wear in court. We know how dress was important to Ned and the greeter boys, and of course Ned was no longer his previous imposing figure. Now with his shuffle and mangled arms, so the clothing would have been very important to him in projecting an image. Gaunson knew very little of the background of the, or of the many personalities and witnesses involved, and he had the difficult task of trying to defend someone who was actually willing to own up to all that he had done, albeit claiming he was put in the position because of continued harassment and that he was forced to take up arms. It would be a tricky task, and perhaps there would not be much he could do. On the morning of Friday the 6th, 
the Beechworth Court was readied, with armed guards on every door and a large police contingent in town. Though, apart from Maggie and Tom, there was no obvious presence of other Kelly supporters that day. The courtroom was filled with interested onlookers and journalists, though. And an unusual number of females, remarked on by the papers. As mentioned earlier, Ned had got a reputation for being attentive to the ladies over the couple of bank raids. Apparently, the ladies were keen to see the beardy bad boy in person. When the magistrate finally came in, most of the court were amazed to see that not only was the local magistrate Foster sitting, but that he was joined at the bench by Police Commissioner Standish. This was highly unusual, but nonetheless, while Foster explained he would be in charge of the proceedings, Standish remained at his side as a second justice at the bench. Gaunson, having spoken to his client for only an hour or so, immediately asked that a further remand be granted, so he had some opportunity to talk with his client and prepare a defence. And though he argued his case for an hour, and despite this being a pretty reasonable request under the circumstances, the application was rejected. The only concession given was to allow an adjournment that morning until after the lunch break to give them a small amount of time, but clearly nothing useful could take place in that brief spell. McIntyre was the first witness called and began giving his evidence, though it was noted that Ned appeared to have very little interest in the proceedings. When Gaunson attempted to get further information from Ned that evening to counter any of the evidence that McIntyre gave, Ned again made it clear that he had no desire to defend the charges, only wishing to focus instead on the Fitzpatrick incident and Eleven Mile Creek, which had sent them into the bush in the first place and eventually led to the confrontation at Stringybark Creek. He wanted the unjust treatment of his mother and the others on Fitzpatrick's false evidence to be noted publicly as the cause of it all. Castles noted that Gaunson found Ned's attitude exasperating, and he was already suspicious that not everything Ned said about that incident was the truth. Probably most notably his claim that he was not present for the fracas with Fitzpatrick. During the second day of McIntyre's evidence, Ned had complained to the magistrate that the drafts in the court were causing him grief with all his wounds. Still suffering badly from the cold, they did find a large possum rug, dyed, as Castles puts it, a lurid red, and Ned apparently wrapped himself in it, and it made quite the show for the journalists. One resulting sketch is just the most amazing piece of propaganda. Ned is portrayed as a giant ogre. I'll post that one on the website. Apparently, he and Gaunson laughed about the drawing, but while it was no actual likeness of Ned, it did seem to show his attitude to the court case quite accurately. His lack of respect for the procedure and his disdain for the system and the authorities controlling it. He clearly wanted to show he wasn't cowed by the inevitable outcome. He just wanted to maintain attention so he could have his chance at telling his story. Castles, in reviewing the proceedings and testimony given, suggests that McIntyre did an outstandingly fair and balanced job recording his evidence over those days. He notes McIntyre kept his promise to Ned from their private discussions in the Benalla cell and did not recount some comments Ned made then that could have been unfairly damaging. Overall, he provided a huge amount of clear and detailed evidence and he responded honestly and as unbiased as possible to the cross-examinations. 
McIntyre's testimony would, of course, show Ned clearly responsible for the deaths of the three police officers, though. He did concede that there may have been legal faults in their expedition into the ranges, hunting for the Kellys, not knowing if Kennedy or any of the others actually had warrants for their capture. And he acknowledged that proceeding into the hills in civilian clothing for the hunt was probably not the right thing to do either. But quite reasonably, he also claimed this lapse did not justify the bush rangers bailing them up at gunpoint and firing on them. Dr. Ryan also gave his damning evidence about Lonigan receiving three bullet wounds to his lower body before the fatal shot to the head, implying Lonigan was fired on while running away, and Gaunson failed to reverse that impression, which painted Ned in a more murderous light. Gaunson had earlier arranged with the Age newspaper to provide detailed reports of his meetings with Kelly, a practice apparently not unusual at the time, though to me it seems immediately dodgy and contrary to my imagined knowledge of what a client-lawyer privilege means in regards to privacy. Presumably he viewed such news articles as important tools for gaining public support for his client. Maybe he hoped Ned's words might redress the unremitting negative bias, encouraging readers to give him a fair go. But I'm not sure his reports would have helped that cause. He was able to spend Sunday afternoon in the cells talking to Ned, and he recorded a lot of what was said then to present as the story to the age. Published on Monday, Castle suggests that that article probably constitutes the most clear and authentic record of Ned's attitudes in relation to the charges he was facing. I'll find that article and link to it from the website. But I don't think it was necessarily positive marketing for Ned, though. In the Cameron and Gerildery letters, Ned had maintained that the shooting of Lonigan was done in self-defence after he called on him to bail up and the officer instead went for his gun. In Gaunson's article, he tells him only of Lonigan being his long-time enemy, which does shine a bit of a different light on the resulting death. Gaunson did report the following passages, though. Quote, I do not pretend I have lived a blameless life, or that one fault justifies another. For my part, I do not care one straw about my life, nor the result of the trial. Let the hand of the law strike me down if it will, but I ask that my story might be heard and considered. If my life teaches the public that men are made mad by bad treatment, and if the police are taught that they may not exasperate to madness men they persecute and ill-treat, my life will not entirely be thrown away." Unquote. Now, to me, that doesn't sound entirely... Ned's authentic voice, though he may have mellowed after all the grief, but I guess Gaunson just got the gist from Ned and wrote it as clearly as he could for public consumption. Indeed, there were many who suggested this was all Gaunson's work, attempting to present the police persecution as the catalyst that broke a now penitent man. But at least Gaunson was quite clear now on his client's desire. Ned was certainly not expecting him to save him from the inevitable. Helping him to get the platform he wanted to make his case against the authorities was probably the best he could do. Through Monday and Tuesday, many other witnesses were called. Then Ned's gerildery letter was submitted as some kind of confessional evidence. And it really was pretty damning. He had admitted in there a great many criminal actions, including the shooting of the police, though he made sure to justify it according to his constant refrain of persecution. And so the hearing on Lonigan's death drew to a close. Foster asked Ned if he had anything to say before he was committed to trial, but he answered no. 
The hearing for Scanlon's murder saw the recalling of many of the same witnesses, beginning with McIntyre, though proceedings this time moved on at a much quicker pace, and by Wednesday afternoon Ned was also committed to stand trial for Scanlon's murder too, both set down to be held at Beechworth early in October, probably under the Supreme Court Judge Higginbotham. With all the officials involved still pressing to keep Maggie from visiting with Ned, Gaunson was unable to reverse that decision. Though there had been no signs of trouble from sympathisers, they do seem to have taken all the wind out of any real local resistance by capturing Ned. The authorities once again deemed it safer to move Ned back to the security of Melbourne first thing in the morning. By September, though, the authorities had had yet another thought. It was decided to hold the actual trial in Melbourne, moving it away from the more sympathetic environment of the northeast. The prosecution argued that finding a fearless jury in the northeast, still full of Kelly's supporters, would be difficult and possibly put them at risk. But it was a blow for Ned for other reasons too. Now, the Melbourne hearing would come before Judge Redmond Barry. Barry had a long history with the Kellys. He had presided over Alan's case and sentenced her and the other two very harshly and had already uttered the damning words at that time that if Ned was in court on that day, he would have given him 15 years in prison. Little chance then of a fair and impartial oversight for Ned's trial in Melbourne. Barry had made up his mind about the Kellys years ago. Gaunson protested the move on a number of grounds, but all to no avail. It obviously suited the establishment to have such a bulldog presiding. Barry is actually a fascinating character, and his legacy in Melbourne deserves its own little Australian Histories podcast episode at some point. But he was most certainly full of contradictions in relation to morals, behaviour and class. It seemed inevitable that Ned would be found guilty, but the judge would determine whether or not a death penalty would be imposed. Barry was definitely one for taking the more severe options, so Gaunson would now certainly be fighting for Ned's life. In October 1880, Melbourne was to host Australia's first international exhibition. The exhibition was to be modelled on the hugely successful London event, championed by Prince Albert in 1851. It would showcase all the best and brightest Victoria and Australia had to offer the world. And vast numbers of international and Australian visitors were expected in Melbourne. It had been years in the planning, and the beautiful exhibition buildings in Melbourne, which still stands and still hosts a myriad of events in Melbourne today, along with the equally lovely gardens, were purpose-built for that exhibition, and were busily being readied for the show while all this was going on. There was to be a public holiday for its opening and grand procession through Melbourne and it was hoped that all manner of attention would be focused on Melbourne, Victoria. The Kelly trial, now scheduled around the same time, would not be a welcome intrusion. I think we can assume that everyone in power was keen to see it all done and dusted so attention would be focused only on this fabulous event. In the end, the trial was to start later in October, a few weeks after the exhibition opened so hopefully not causing any embarrassment to the Victorian government. Interestingly, though, moving the trial to Melbourne did not guarantee Ned would be completely friendless. There was a groundswell of support developing in Melbourne. 
Once he was settled back in jail, Ned was permitted to see his mother again, and they finally relented, allowing a visit from Maggie too, and Gaunson began preparing for the Supreme Court trial. The Kellys were having trouble raising any funds for Ned's defence, as all the hold-up dosh was long gone. The Lands Department had also officially reclaimed Alan's settlement, with no compensation, though they remained living there, and this would later be reversed, Alan finally getting the title to her land many years later. So they were in dire straits. Gaunson, though now having good information to work with, being a solicitor could not directly address the Supreme Court. Unable to secure the barrister of his choice with no capacity to pay, he had instead to work with the recently qualified, court-appointed Henry Bindon, said to be, quote, the most inexperienced barrister in the colony, unquote. Bindon, having been out of Victoria for most of the Kelly outbreak, also knew very little in the way of background to the case or of the persons involved. Jail staff found that Ned's health and state of mind improved in the following weeks. Castles records that his main preoccupation seems to be ensuring he looked his best for the upcoming court appearance. Monday 18th of October, a crowd gathered at the Supreme Court to witness the proceedings. Maggie, dressed in mourning black, Tom Lloyd and others were also in attendance. Kate was at home caring for the children, including the baby Alice, who had recently been removed from Alan in jail and sent back to the family at Greeter. Ned's new barrister immediately asked for more time to become familiar with his case. This time the prosecution, being, quote, very unwilling that there should be even the slightest reason for saying hereafter this prisoner has been improperly prosecuted or harshly treated, unquote, did agree that a stay of proceedings would be appropriate. Judge Barry, declaring the Crown very gracious in allowing the postponement, would be in the country until the 28th on legal matters. So the case was adjourned for 10 days. On the 28th, two days after the second anniversary of the Stringybark Creek shootings, Bindon pleaded again for a further extension of time. But this time Barry was determined to conclude the whole affair promptly, and he refused. Looking back on his performance, many sources suggest that while making a, a few interesting points while representing Ned, on the whole, he was a disaster. He made a couple of large rookie mistakes which severely limited Ned's options for defence. Bindon based his case on mistaken identity of who actually fired the shot that killed Lonigan instead of the more likely self-defence. And he was further criticised for having the Gerildery letter ruled inadmissible because it was not in Ned's handwriting. Its contents, according to those who understand the law better than me, would have supported any argument for self-defence. He failed to make the most of the frequent conflicting accounts, shooting evidence and forensic evidence presented. As Caulfield implied, it may just have been the intention of the court to ensure Ned's barrister was the most inexperienced, in a courtroom with a judge most determined to find a guilty verdict. So while evidence against Ned really is very strong, and it would not have been in any way viable to think he might walk away with a not guilty verdict, we can concede that the trial itself was not the finest example of fair justice and procedure that we should expect and pride our system on. It is this weakness that Kelly supporters continue to refer to today, with some reasonable basis. The prosecution had decided to drop the Scanlon case. On reflection, 
they probably considered they could quite easily win the Lonigan case, whereas Scanlon's death had no witnesses, McIntyre having already fled. But there is conjecture that another pressing matter may have encouraged them to ensure a shorter sitting time. They didn't want the proceedings to run into the Melbourne Cup weekend in early November. Though they had prepared a brief for Scanlon's murder in case Lonigan should fail. Castles advises those briefs are now housed in the Sir Thomas Ramsay collection at Scotch College Library, Melbourne. And so the trial began. Though Ned sat quiet for most part, his charisma shone through, and the reporters now described Ned as handsome and manly, and that, quote, no one could see in his face the ferocity with which he is credited, unquote. The public mood was changing a little. The inexperienced Bindon frequently failed to get the point of the questions fed to him by Gwonson, and he wasted opportunities. Running probably the wrong line of defence, he also failed to bring in witnesses for the defence and did not let Ned take the stand, though on a good day Ned could be a very impressive speaker. In his own words, Ned's case would have been laid before the jury. Lonigan and Scanlon's death would have been described as self-defence, as Ned saw it, and it would have served to strengthen the growing support amongst the public who were already beginning to question the role of the police in instigating the outbreak. According to Castles, with an expert knowledge of the options, Binion's lack of understanding of the evidence and the procedure was clear in his summing up. He failed to make the key point related to his mistaken identity defence, that while McIntyre saw Kelly firing, others were also shooting, and there was no evidence to prove that it was indeed Ned's bullet that was the fatal one. Many believe a skilful lawyer should have been able to prove it was not willful murder as charged, thus perhaps saving him from the death penalty. After a short and very one-sided trial, Barry sent the jury out to deliberate, but he instructed them not to return with any thought of manslaughter. They must rule guilty of murder or acquit. They were hardly able to acquit on the evidence given. It took only half an hour to overcome the concerns of the one juror who was disturbed by the expected sentence of hanging. By 5.40pm, Ned had been found guilty of murder. When the foreman asked if Ned had anything to say, Jones records him answering, Well, it's rather too late for me to speak now. I thought of speaking this morning, but I thought afterwards I'd better not. There was little use, and there is little use in blaming anyone now. Nobody knows about my case except myself. On the evidence that has been given, no doubt the jury, or any other jury, could not give any other verdict. It is not that I fear death. I fear it as little as to drink a cup of tea. I do not blame anybody, neither Mr. Bindon nor Mr. Gaunson. But Mr. Bindon knew nothing about my case. I lay blame on myself that I did not get up yesterday and examine the witnesses. But I thought if I did so, it would look like bravado and flashness, and people might have said that I thought myself cleverer than the counsel. So I let it go as it was." Unquote. He had not been well represented or defended, and everybody knew it. And then Judge Redmond Barry put the black cloth on his head and pronounced his sentence. Ned leaned forward, uncowered, and responded to Barry calmly. And I'm largely quoting from Jones's book here. Under the circumstances, I expected this verdict. 
Barry replied that he could conceive of no circumstances that would have altered the result. There were a few more words exchanged. Then Barry said, quote, It's painful in the extreme to perform the duty which I have now to discharge. I do not think anything I can say would aggravate the pain you must be suffering. But Ned responded strongly, No, I declare before you, God and man, that my mind is easy and clear as it possibly can be. Barry snapped, It's blasphemous for you to say so. You appear to revel in the idea of having put men to death. Ned responded, More men than me have put men to death. No man abhors murder more than I do. And he went on to indicate how he'd been forced into his actions. Barry said, Your statement involves wicked and criminal reflection of untruth upon the witnesses who have given evidence. Ned said, I dare say, but the day will come when we shall all have to go to a bigger court than this. Then we will see who is right and who is wrong. No matter how long a man lives, he is bound to come to judgment somewhere, and as well here as anywhere. Barry told Ned he was a member of the class that had completely cut itself off from all decencies, the affections, the charities and all the obligations of society, suggesting he was no better than a beast in the field. He said the love of country, the love of order, the love of obedience to the law have been set aside for reasons difficult to explain and there is something extremely wrong in a country where the lawless band of men you and your associates are able to live 18 months disturbing society and you have actually had the hardihood to confess to having stolen 200 horses even during your short lifetime. Ned said, who proves that? Barry reminded him, more than one witness testified you have made a statement on several occasions. But Ned replied, that charge has never been proved against me and it's held in English law that a man is innocent until he's found guilty. Barry said, you are self-accused. I do not accuse you, that's your own statement. And they continued on, trading and arguing for a short while, before Barry returned to the matter at hand, saying, In your case, I cannot hold out any hope to you that the sentence which I am now about to pass will be remitted. I desire to spare you any further pain, and I absolve myself from anything said willingly in any of my utterances that may have unnecessarily increased the agitation in your mind. I have now to pronounce your sentence. You will be taken from here to a place of execution, and there you will be hanged by the neck until you are dead. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. But Ned had the last word, calmly and firmly telling the judge, I will go a little further than that and say, I will see you there where I go. Barry finally lost patience and he bellowed, Remove the prisoner! And so the trial had come to an end. This feisty retort to Barry has also gone down as a powerful part of the Kelly mythology. It's usually assumed that Ned was referring to them both going to hell, but he may just have meant to the afterlife. And as it turned out, Redmond Barry was not long for this world either. We'd better finish the episode up here today. The next time, we're going to finish off the series by looking at Ned's last days, the response of the public to his sentencing, and a brief look at the Royal Commission into the Kelly outbreak. We might then consider where we think Ned fits into our culture and our mythology today, and where he should end up on the sliding scale of villain to hero. So then, we'll draw a line under the Kelly saga. With Christmas and the New Year fast approaching, I'm going to work on the final one straight away in the hope of getting it out as soon as possible. I'll then take a little break 
January is traditionally the holiday month in Australia, so I'll be off air for a few weeks, and I'll look forward, after that last Kelly episode, to moving on to new ideas and new stories in a shorter, more self-contained format. So I'll talk to you about the first new story next week. In the meantime, if you have been enjoying the series to date, I might ask you once again to help me promote it by sharing and liking on your various social media platforms and by logging in and giving the show a positive review and a healthy five-star ranking. And for those of you who'd like to help me cover the costs of hosting the podcast series and purchasing the materials for future research, there is now a support option for making a donation on the website, if you're able and willing. I want to shout out to Julie, Lee M, Luce N and Barb H who provided some support and encouragement recently. So thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who's been listening along all this time. I'll get the next and final Kelly episode out as soon as I can. So I'll talk to you very soon. Take care. Cheers now.